I'm, I'm always amazed at how powerful those conversations that you can have with somebody that you're working with out in the woods, standing next to a log deck or standing next to a, a broken down piece of equipment. And they finally start to ask you some of those questions that you know they probably had in the back of their minds or wanted to ask you for five or 10 years. Like, what you know, what is it you guys really do? Or how do you really do this? Or, um, you know, are you independently wealthy? Or, <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm just working just like you. Or, you know, we're, we're trying to put food on the table here, but we just are motivated by, by maybe some different things, but probably we have a lot in common. Hey, y'all, and welcome to episode 28 of Life with Fire podcast, the podcast about how we interact with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it moving forward. I'm your host, Amanda Montai. Uh, today, we're talking to Jay McLaughlin, who is the executive director of the Mount Adams Resource Stewards. Jay started the Mount Adams Resource Stewards back in 2004 and provides a ton of great insights as to how he started the organization, why he started the organization, as well as how he's built uh, engagement in a community that was heavily resource dependent, very dependent on logging um, and commercial harvesting, and how he's been able to engage those folks and engage this uh, community as a whole in the idea of progressive land management, prescribed fire, um, utilizing those contractors and those folks who were previously involved with logging in the idea of um, better and more progressive land management. So super cool to talk to Jay. He has a ton of organizational experience with these community collaborative type of structures, I guess you could say, and gave a lot of great insight as to how this organization is run, how he started it, um, and provides a few suggestions for other folks who might be interested in starting similar organizations in their own communities um, and how to really bridge the gap between those resource-dependent communities or those previously resource-dependent communities and those practices that are going to bring us into a more fire-adapted future. So thank you to Jay for coming on the show. Before we get into it, I just want to say a big thank you, of course, as always, to everybody for listening and sharing and uh, for all the great messages that we always get about um, folks sharing this podcast with their students or with their colleagues or how they heard about it from a colleague. So just got to say, I really appreciate how much this is being shared. And uh, please continue sharing it with anybody that you think might be interested in the topics that we cover. Um, we have a lot of things that we want to cover in the next couple of months. We're going to try to keep up with it. Um, we're also talking to a few different folks about potential sponsorships. And if you or your company or you know somebody who might be interested in sponsoring the podcast uh, wants to talk about that, I'd love to hear uh, about any potential opportunities there. We're kind of trying to grow and build up maybe a few more employees, uh, bringing on folks to do more sound production as any of you who might have former sound production experience might know, like we are not experts in that. And by we, I mean me, because I'm kind of solely producing this right now. But um, we're really looking forward to growing. Um, we're doing a rebrand in a few weeks. We have some uh, logo work and graphic design work coming up uh, and just sensing a lot of growth in the next couple of months. So we're really excited to start bringing on some more sponsors and to continue kind of getting the word out about the show and what we are generally talking about on here, which is essentially fire adaptation, not only in the U.S., but kind of across the world. So thank you for all the support and a specific call out for Whitney Dean and Susanna Thompson, who have supported our Patreon at the 20 or $30 level. That's a huge sign of support, and I really can't tell you guys how much I appreciate it. So just wanted to call that out really quickly. 
Um, one more thing I wanted to add in before we get into the episode is for y'all to check out Dear Humans which might be of interest to some of you. Uh, it's a new podcast that's really well-developed by uh, Eve Bishop. Um, Eve reached out to me to do a cross-promotion, but I unfortunately just uh, haven't had a lot of time to create um, an advertisement to put in her episodes. But I did want to give her a quick shout-out and have you guys check it out if you're interested in learning more about deer overpopulation on Long Island, which is like fascinating, like super niche topic, but super interesting. And I figured a few of you might also be interested in it. Um, it's a four-part series, and she has released the first episode. Uh, so I will link to that in our show notes for this episode, and check it out if you're interested. And finally, let's get into this episode with Jay. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, so Jay McLaughlin with Mount Adams Resource Stewards, and um, I'm the, the founding director, executive director. Uh, we started at Mount Adams Resource Stewards back in about 2004, and at the time, I was I was actually working as a timber sale officer, forester for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, Yakima Agency on the Yakima Reservation, and here in Southern Washington, South Slopes of Mount Adams, We've got a mixed ownership that varies from tribal to federal, primarily the, the Forest Service, Gifford Pinch National Forest, uh, a little bit of BLM land and uh, a National Wildlife Refuge, Convoy Lake National Wildlife Refuge, state land, and then a pretty decent chunk of, of private industrial land. And a lot of, um, there were a lot of changes that were taking place there in the early 2000s in terms of who owned those industrial lands, the transition from um, an ownership that had been in the area for several decades. At one point, they'd had mills for that kind of classic vertically integrated timber company to the timberland investment sector, and um, and and that and that uh, I think raised a lot of eyebrows here in the local community as far as you know where things were headed from a private land management perspective and whether they'd have jobs you know next week, next year, that kind of thing. Um, what it meant for things like public access and a lot of other things that were really important here in local communities that had long-standing ties with their, their surrounding forests. And, and then on the other end of things, we had the federal state, um, primarily the Gifford Pinchot National Forest that through the 70s and 80s had really been a, a timber machine um, that had gone by the wayside through the 90s, as, as, as we all know, that, that classic story. And, and then we started seeing increasingly large fires lighting on the landscape. Um, there's a, the, the Gifford Pinto National Forest is largely regarded as a west side forest, but it does have the Mount Adams Ranger District, which spans the Cascade Crest and uh, really gets into these kind of transitional, classic transitional mixed conifer forests that, that had a history of, of frequent low intensity fire and obviously have seen that altered over the past century. So, so um, you know, heavy fuel loadings, yet not a fuels program because of the Gifford Pinchot's regard as a West Side forest. And so some conversations that emerged through our work with them um, fast forwarding, you know, a number of years, I mean, getting into the 2010, 2015, even about how we could bring resources to bear to help them um, ramp up a fuels program, uh, bring fire back to the landscape and some of these ponderous pine stands that had had experienced a lot of encroachment from Trufer and, and, and seen a pretty radical modification in terms of the vegetation community. Uh, I guess I'm getting a, maybe a little bit away from the structure of our organization. Um, you know, for those of us that, that work 
in organizations like Mount Adams Resource Stewards, some you know often struggle to explain it, uh, but but uh, some of us refer to them as community-based forestry organizations, community-based natural resource management organizations, or community forestry organizations. And and when I first got into this work twenty-ish years ago, most of those organizations that were in existence at that point in time were working with other landowners, um, often federal agencies primarily the Forest Service, often in association with a collaborative group or often that work led to the formation of some kind of collaborative group that worked with the Forest Service to bring stakeholders to the table through a lot of meetings and hopefully arrive at some kind of consensus to do good management on the ground, whether it be restoration, whether it be fuels management, prescribed fire, some, some type of vegetation management often. Is, is where we're a little bit unique is that as Mount Adams resource stewards got up and going because of that industrial private forest uh, component that I described earlier, uh, we actually saw, uh, set out to acquire some lands as a way to address some of the concerns that we had here in the community. And so we established what we call the Mount Adams Community Forest with our first land purchase in 2011. It's small, it's only a little over a thousand acres. We've completed five five purchases to date, but it's been a, a really meaningful undertaking for us as an organization, as an organization that does both that community-based forestry type of work through a collaborative group and with a lot of partners, as I as I first described, and also an organization that owns its own forest lands a little bit more like a land trust. Um, it's it's enabled us to, you might say, kind of more more. Of, I don't want to use the word efficiently, but maybe more um, proactively address some immediate concerns and opportunities around um, putting good fire back into these forests, uh, doing the kind of fuels management work that we want to do in the sense that we really aren't dependent on, you know, a, a big collaborative type of process and agency review and approval and NEPA and all those kinds of things that folks that work with federal agencies are accustomed to. So, so as we've accumulated tracts of, of forest land, it's been the kind of place that we can really try to showcase some of the things that we're also hoping to see on adjacent, you know, federal and state and other lands. And, um, and, and that's been really exciting and, and powerful for us. About five years ago now, we launched what we call our stewardship crew program. And that was in response to in an effort, an effort to where initially we we tried to work with local contractors as part of our rural economic development, land stewardship, restoration types of kind of growing the stewardship economy kind of intention, and, and really struggled to find local contractors that were willing to stick their necks out and take on some of the kinds of projects that came through our, came across our desk, essentially. And so after trying to do that for four or five, six years, holding a number of workshops and trainings and putting together a website that tried to connect um, emerging contractors and entrepreneurs with land managers, uh, we ended up turning out or, or starting up our own our own crew that, like I said, is called our stewardship crew. Um, going into year five, it has been, it's been a, a really successful endeavor. Um, we, let's see, last year we ran about seven folks. This year it's growing to about 10. Um, they, we call it a stewardship crew because they do a lot of different things and that's important to keeping people that are 
that are really sharp, really motivated, um, keeping them inspired, keeping them keeping them interested, um, enabling them them to use some of the skills that they bring to the table, and and that work ranges from running chainsaws, you know, prepping prescribed burn units, and and uh, doing defensible space work for some private landowners around structures, to invasive species management and tree planning and restoration projects, installation of things like beaver dam analogs and wet meadows systems. Um, they've done stand exams and timber cruising, uh, trail construction, you name it. But but the the single largest projects or, or project that we have had has been that. Uh, prescribed burn unit prep work that that we've been doing on the south side of Mount Adams with the Gifford Pinto National Forest, and so that's we're going into year, I think year four of that, and um, so this is a project that that comprises a couple thousand acres of that forest that I described earlier, that that transitional mixed conifer forest that that really is needing good fire back into it, and so um, last year after after the preceding two seasons of prepping those units was the first year that we attempted to put fire back into those units and we ran into some of the the typical classic hurdles in terms of uh, approvals and weather windows and and you name it um we got a little bit done and we're looking forward to hopefully doing a lot more of that this year we've we've also um burned on our own community forest lands uh, several several prescribed burns those have all been prescribed burns and we've worked very closely with the u.s fish and wildlife services they have some ownership adjacent to to the community forest uh, so so worked very collaboratively with fish and wildlife service prescribed burn managers and um and conducted some of these cross-boundary burns and I think that's probably about the extent of burning to date. So you know, relatively new in terms of some of the other organizations I know that you've had on your program um, and, and folks you know, down in California and places like that that have been involved with prescribed burn associations and other undertakings where they're really, you know, they're, they, they've really been doing it for a while now and are getting a lot of acres under their belt. Yeah, this is a really good example of it working in a state that maybe isn't always considered the most fire prone, you know, and I know that this is the first organization or the first, um, yeah, organization of its kind in Washington state. And you were a founding, you were the founder, right? That's awesome. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm the guilty, I'm the guilty party. Guilty party. <laughs> you know, I'm just or imagining. Ever glutton for punishment. <laughs> I'm just imagining like yeah. a system like this or a, an organization like this, like in every community where they just have a 10 person stewardship crew or a 20 person stewardship crew that did all that similar work, like in every potentially fire prone community. I think that would be amazing. So I love that this is, this is like such a good example for a lot of other places. I'm curious, do you think that this is scalable to other communities around the West? Like, you know, in terms of the process that it took to get it in place and the collaborations that you've had and, you know, this, the sort of land use in that specific area, do you think this is scalable? I absolutely do. And and we drew a lot from some other successful examples out there, maybe maybe some that you visited with or had on the program before, but folks like the like Jonathan Bruno down at the Coalition for up, the Upper South Platte, now at AIM, Coco, uh, the folks down at the Watershed Center, and and the folks down at the Forest Stewards Guild. So so definitely learned a lot from others and and felt like there was um you know enough experience out there in other communities to support that that this could be replicated in many places across the west one of the things that's been been mind-blowing to me is just how well received it's been and how it seems to just continue to grow every year and 
have got a new dimensions um, added in or thrown at us. And um, yeah, I could, I could absolutely see something like this work in locations all around the West. I think one of the things as we designed this, this undertaking was um, how important kind of that broader stewardship approach was. And, and I think if I were to try to describe it generally, as we looked at, looked at the, the landscape of, of forest work and labor, you often saw these crews that would come through our area, planting trees, maybe starting over in Western Oregon, Western Washington, they kind of move through our area a few weeks later, planting trees, move on east, move up in elevation. And, and then they'd be coming back during fire season and they'd be some of the same crews that would be responding to fires come late June, July, August. And, and so you have, you know, a very specialized workforce, you know, doing a couple of different things that covered a massive geography across, across the West. And, and our approach was, okay, how do we keep people sleeping in their own beds at night? How do we utilize some of the people that live in our community? And, and what do we have to do to do that? And it was really like diversify. And, and so bring on some highly capable people that know their tree species, that understand fire ecology, at least, at least in a basic sense, that have some fire quals. And, um, you know, whether it's single resource boss or some prescribed burning skills, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and building a crew that can really respond to the different types of inquiries and requests that we were receiving. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm optimistic. That is so cool. I love it. Um, is, was the community pretty on board with this from the get-go or was there sort of like a moment of like getting, trying to get them to buy into it? I, I like to say that, um, I mean, the community has been, has been wonderful. They've been largely supportive. That said, as, as, as you may have experienced in a lot of rural Western resource dependent communities, there's, there, there does tend to be a certain level of maybe call it apathy or, or, or lack of engagement, people that are just, you know, trying to put food on the table, trying to make a living, don't have a lot of time to go to meetings and, and especially engage on some maybe out of the box thinking. Uh, we used to joke about it as the, the same 10 people principle, you know, being the same 10 people that are on the fire department, that are on the community council, that are the little league coaches and, and are on the school board. And, and that's what it's felt like or, or felt like for a lot of years. Uh, we really have ended up addressing a geography that has a number of these kind of small rural communities, rural centers or unincorporated you know, communities that are 300 to 1,000 people, uh, pretty heavily focused in a couple a couple specific communities. And, and so it feels like you can never do enough to do the outreach and get people on board. But when we've hosted or brought in presentations like Era of Megafires, and we pretty much packed a gym with people that were, were drawn to the topic and got to hear a little bit more about some of the collaboration that was taking place between our organization, Forest Service, the state, and other landowners. And, and little by little, I think it's just, it's just really, a, it's grown through time and it's evolved in a really productive and positive way. The, uh, yeah, I used, I used to count the, you know, the detractors or the naysayers. Unfortunately, it's always been kind of like on one hand, I can, I can count them. And, and even today I'd say it's, uh, if there are any detractors out there, they're not nearly as vocal as they used to be. You know, people that have issues with like well, government grants or what's a nonprofit organization or you know, the Forest Service, they just need to get back to the way their timber program was in the 1970s and 80s. And it's just like, okay, guys, we're, we're not going back there. And, you know, is it better to spend grant money 
doing fuels management now or putting out a, you know, taxpayers paying to put out a massive wildfire in the middle of the summer. And, and so we've got our choices and I think people have come around in a big way through time. Yeah. You really have signed up for quite a bit here. I'm curious, like what the original influence was for you to want to do this. Um, I'm sure you kind of knew what you were getting into, but it was probably a can of worms eventually. (laughs) As I said, I definitely, I think I'm a glutton for punishment, but, but I, you know, Amanda, I, I came, I first moved in this community fresh out of uh, an assignment with my wife in uh, in the Peace Corps down in Central America. So, so had a little bit of that community organizing, um, you know, try to make the world a better place kind of attitude coming in. Actually moved to this community as a school teacher and, and taught high school for a couple of years and coached basketball. And, and it, was, it was during that initial time that this big land, private land ownership uh, experience was unfolding. And, and so, you know, having having kids in my class, students of, of loggers and foresters and ranchers who were really wondering, like, you know, where is this all headed? This is pretty scary. I, I ended up going back to graduate school and and doing a, a master's in forestry and 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 really thinking about like, what are, what do these small resource based communities in the West do? What's their future? And I, I, I've always been drawn to creative thinking, thinking out of the box. Um, call it social entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it. And uh, uh, it, it just seemed like such a, I don't know, like, why aren't we doing this, I guess, kind of situation. And, and also had the opportunity to benefit from some of those, those other organizations that were pioneers in this, in this world. Uh, I actually did an internship back in 2001 with Wallowa Resources over in Northeastern Oregon. And I don't think they have a crew program quite like ours, but it was just a, a really cool opportunity to, to see how an organization and a community organized in a place like that. I'm curious uh, where you, probably grants, I'm guessing, but where is some of the, or is most of your funding sort of coming from? We can also take this out. I'm just curious, mostly. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really quite diversified. And it, um, it kind of ebbs and flows or changes from year to year. Some years it's pretty, pretty grant dependent or heavy to grants. And some years there's a lot of earned revenues that come in from some of the more contractual type of work we do. That's, that's a stewardship program, but really across the organization, that tends to be the case. Uh, Like I I mentioned, I was almost late because I was, I was uh, helping out a logging contractor that's working on the community forest right now. So we have revenues that are coming in from, from timber harvest and we try to keep those tied to projects that are on the community forest we'll be burning out there this spring uh this is kind of a, a a preparatory commercial harvest that then the crew will as soon as the snow breaks here uh or melts off uh, the crew will be out there prepping that unit and and we're hoping to get a good spring burn come april may out there but but there are some revenues that just just help the bottom line of this organization so it's it's definitely been um it's taken a lot of creativity um it's taken sometimes uh you know a stomach for those lean years but fortunately i mean you know 2008 2009 those are those kind of stand out in my memory is pretty tough times but but it is really really um kind of taken on a a a life of its own and and the investments that we're seeing from the washington state 
in forest health from now the federal government and we've yet to really see what that's going to exactly look like as the infrastructure bill rolls out but but given the identification of, of forest health and wildfire risk reduction needs um in the west it, it's encouraging i just like i love that idea you know of of still being able to engage certain members of the community through those contracts i love the idea of collaborating with them of like we can still do some commercial harvesting. We can still do some of these timber units, um, but then we're still also going to come in and do those prescribed fires. Um, and I think that really is the path forward is finding that middle ground. And it seems like you guys have nailed that. I'd like to say we nailed it. It's 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 a work in progress, right? It's 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 in a always. Um, yeah. It's a yeah. It's a continuous challenge, and yet I'm never. Uh, I'm I'm always amazed at how powerful those conversations that you can have with somebody that you're working with out in the woods standing next to a log deck or standing next to a, a broken down piece of equipment and they finally start to ask you some of those questions that you know they probably had in the back of their minds or wanted to ask you for five or ten years like what you know what is it you guys really do or how do you really do this or um, you know are you independently wealthy or <laughs> You know, like, no, I'm just working just like you, or, you know, we're, we're trying to put food on the table here, but we just are motivated by, by maybe some different things, but probably we have a lot in common. And, and yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm always impressed with those conversations and they feel pretty darn good when they happen and, and, and does, does well, I think, by the organization and by building some of the bridges that unfortunately it seems like are, are lacking in this day and age, right? Absolutely. That's exactly it, right? We got to like bring everybody on board. We got to get everybody to sort of buy into this idea if we want to make any feasible progress. Um, and that being, the, you know, like with that said, I think uh, it'd be great to hear kind of your suggestions for anybody that's interested in doing something, something similar in their own community. Uh, lessons learned or anything that you can think of to help people build a similar idea in their own uh, spaces. Yeah, great, great question. Um... And, and I wish there were a magic formula, but I do think there are some things that that are important. And, you know, one, bring people into your your effort, your movement, whatever you want to call it, that, that um, you know, have credibility in your community that people trust and respect and, um, yeah, and will listen to. And, um, and, and whether that is, you as an individual that's spearheading something like this or whether it's your board of directors if you're establishing an organization or whether it's a group of speakers that can that can serve as a panel and some kind of workshop or meeting that you're trying to convene in your community i think that's 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 huge and and we've had a strong board of directors at mount adams resource stewards maybe not in the traditional sense of nonprofit organizations and and boards that go out there and raise tons of money. But in terms of representation from the community, just in terms of representing different sectors or segments or constituencies, whether it's, you know, we've had we've had logging contractors and ranchers and foresters and, you know, retired conservation district managers and retired agency personnel and, and representatives from the tribe, um, you know, business owners, you name it, the folks that, that were on the county planning commission uh, retired county judges, and and so bringing people like that into our fold that that um, really carried that respect with the community. Um, what else would I say? Yeah, yeah, just you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. That outreach piece is something that I wish we did better. We we don't do enough. It's something that 
that is is hard to figure out sometimes. Uh, you know, we try to have a little bit of a social media presence, for example. Uh, we've had a I've had a pleasant surprise recently with our stewardship crew program lead starting up a, a, a an Instagram page just for our stewardship crew, and and just does a remarkable job of getting information out there on why prescribed burning, why why for you know what's forest health, uh, you name it. But he he does just a, a, such a better job than I could ever do in terms of connecting with a certain constituency that that learns that way or follows organizations and things going on in their communities that way. Um, let's see, what else? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, you know, listening is a huge thing. Um, meeting people where, where they are, where, where they're comfortable, uh, you know, getting out, like I said, in the woods and, and working side by side with people that do this work or, or have, have um, worked in the woods all their life or a portion of their life and, and have some perspectives that are, that are super, you know, super valuable in terms of just the way things work out there. I mean, something I've come to enjoy that I never would have guessed when I started out is, is kind of that social entrepreneurial perspective of, of mixing together or blending together or layering, if you will, the different activities, the different things that you're going to take on uh, that reflect priorities in your community, but also ways by which your undertaking can be economically viable and financially sustainable. And, and like I said, I, you know, I'm, I don't come from the business sector. Uh, I come from the sciences and a little bit of education and, and that part's been fun. Um, yeah, just, just, just kind of mixing and matching and, and putting together things that uh, appeal either to where the philanthropic community might be or the, the public sector granting agencies or entities or programs might be or um yeah just you know things that 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 mean something in your community and beyond that that get shared that get told you know spoken to or spoken about in a way that you know it's pretty amazing sometimes when you when you go to the p.o box and you have a check for twenty thousand dollars that it comes from somebody who's just really really excited about the work that we do and and something clicked i think with something that they heard about everything that's going on in our forests uh you know whether it's era of mega fires and climate change or whether it was a fire in 2015 or 2012 that that just scared the bejesus out of them um it's something that moved them to to want to support a lo local initiative to do something about it that's great that's like all we can ever hope for and doing what right. we do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, let's see, what else? You know, find good people when you get there. I, I actually, I quit my day job with the federal government in 2006 and worked pretty much five years by myself uh, before I cobbled together enough more grant revenue to be able to bring in an AmeriCorps intern and then the next year hire a full-time second staff person to where last year, I think we had 21 people uh, as seasonal staff at one point or another on our books and, and it'll be more this year. And so, um, but, but it's been exciting to watch as we've been able to hire more people, just, just what quality, high quality employees mean, people that are enthusiastic, people that have their own circles of, 
of friends and and peers in a community that can help get that word out there in in different places it's just, just kind of neat to see that the the, the effort gain momentum like you know that snowball effect and uh and it's it is real yeah you know i mean i've, I've also been described as as stubborn and um yeah you know just just being relentless and if and if you feel like there's if you feel like there's a place for this kind of work and and it you know there's going to be times when you feel like you're beating your head against the wall or the agencies are telling you no or you don't have the right person in the right place that's willing to help you out or you feel like the, the doors are being closed uh you know you just you just got to reroute you just gotta you just gotta you know put your head down and keep going and and i you know there's clearly a point when when that doesn't make sense and it maybe flirts with insanity but um it, yeah i mean i think there were definitely some years there where some people would have would have uh thrown in the towel so to speak and and yet we've come through that and here we are and and it's pretty exciting when you can you know walk through the woods a few weeks after you've implemented the prescribed fire controlled burn and and see you know different species of wildflowers that are that are blooming that you'd never noticed in that place before and and just some of the remarkable responses in in a forest under story once it experiences that that fire that it had evolved to to have on a much more frequent and um, less intense basis all right that's what we've got for you today for life with fire um, thanks again for listening and thanks to jay for coming on the show and talking about his organization and all the great work that they do and explaining a little bit about how other folks can do similar work in their own communities super useful to hear those experiences and to get those suggestions from somebody doing that work on the ground. So huge thanks to Jay. If you guys would like to know more about the Mount Adams resource stewards, we will link to some information about them in this episode's show notes. And otherwise, just want to say that I appreciate you guys listening and I will catch you on the next one.